Dr. Stith and I today discuss the ways that she's navigating multiple ideological perspectives in domestic violence work, negotiating tensions with couples and violence, and how we maintain international collaboration while staying careful of colonization. Welcome to the AFTA Podcast. I am Naveed Zamani and I am your host. In this session, I'll be speaking with Dr. Sandy Stith. Sandy Stith is a professor emerita in the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Kansas State University. In 2011, APA published her book, Couples Treatment for Domestic Violence, Finding Safe Solutions, describing a treatment program she and her colleagues developed with NIMH funding. In 2021, she co-edited a book with Chelsea Spencer, International Perspectives on Intimate Partner Violence, Challenges and Opportunities, published by AFTA Springer. Previously, she served on the AFTA board and in 2007 received AFTA's Distinguished Contribution to Family Systems Research Award. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Stith. It's really good to see you. I like to start off these conversations asking, what's been grabbing your attention these days in your work? Well, I continue to be very excited about working with couples and how we as family therapists can really make a difference in our work when there is domestic violence uh, in couples, with the couples we see. And another passion that's really stirring me right now is international perspectives and trying to understand what is it like to be in a a therapist working in another country in domestic violence. I've had many opportunities to travel and train. And then uh, when I was working on the after brief, I read uh, I read uh, Teresa McDowell's earlier work, and she brought up the idea of colonization and how we take our evidence-based work and we move it to another country and just say, this is how you do it, without understanding what is domestic violence there what what's going on how do therapists work what are families like so both continuing to think about couples but also thinking about international perspectives and how can we as family therapists really uh, be helpful and our work be helpful internationally well full disclosure i am deeply drawn to your work in general um, as my own work is uh, situated in the domestic violence world and both of these items that you're bringing up, uh, particularly as you're talking about working with couples in domestic violence, which I think probably makes a lot of couples therapists shudder and scared right. and get nervous to a degree. Um, and also, I think there's probably a group of people that are likely curious and shuddering, thinking about international perspectives and the uh, risk of colonization, I suppose, to use that language right. from domestic violence epistemology. Uh, is there... Well, as I say that, is there one that maybe you're willing to speak a little bit more to, or perhaps there's an intersection in there that you might expose for us and your work and how you're thinking about it? Well, both of those are important and definitely do overlap. I, I think about my own journey. So when I was in uh, undergraduate school at Oklahoma State, I learned the first time ever that women had rights. I didn't. I grew up in a very patriarchal home. My father spoke at the dinner table. No one else was allowed to speak. Uh, 
we all just had to be quiet, five kids and the, and the mother. I just never thought that women had rights. And then I went home one day and I said to my mother, five kids, did dad ever change a diaper? And she said, hmm, no, I don't remember that ever happening. But that kind of gives you the perspective that mm -hmm. not only was it patriarchal, but it wasn't a notice thing. We just, that's the way we were. So I taught a class as an undergrad about domestic violence and uh, not an undergrad, a grad student, a master's student. And I said, men are the offenders, women are the victims. I talked about basic um, a feminist approach that this is always what's happened and you never work with couples together when there's domestic violence. And I just so totally believed that. And then I started uh, directing a graduate program at Virginia Tech and we would have, we would assess for domestic violence because that's what I am. I do domestic violence research. I worked at a shelter for victims of domestic violence. So first thing we're gonna assess so when you, as a family therapist, do a really good assessment, you're going to find most research says 50%, you know, but it, a lot of the couples that come in, they're not coming for domestic violence. They're just coming for couples therapy. A lot of them have experiences with shoving, pushing, slapping, and a certainly psychological abuse. And so uh, we say, no, okay, that client's out. We send them off. We tell them, go to a batterer program. Mm -hmm. They're not, they're not court ordered. They're not going to a batterer program. They'll go to another therapist in the DC area where we were who didn't have a background in domestic violence. So how am I doing this couple a service? How is that being helpful to end domestic violence? When I say I won't work with them, but I send them to people who don't understand domestic violence. So mm -hmm. I just, decided, you know, we got the grant and we developed a program and we tested and assessed it. And, but it was like you said, so controversial yeah. and I would give speak, you know, talks, get invited to give talks. And, uh, there would be groups of people who wouldn't be able to go the, from the shelter or they weren't allowed to attend. They were told that they were, uh, funded through federal office, and they aren't allowed to do to attend any of these kinds of programs. There was uh, at one point uh, several of us, uh, six of us, were invited to speak or to be involved in a presentation and work in um, um, in okay, like Israel, and and uh, yeah, so we were there at Haifa University and. Three of us were listed as, in this conversation, three were listed as feminist researchers that understand and study domestic violence, and three were family violence. And I was, me and Michael Johnson, anyway, uh, there were several of us that were listed as fa uh, family violence, and I thought, you can't be a feminist and a family violence mm, researcher who works with couples. You either choose, you're a feminist, you don't work with couples, or you're a family violence scholar. And it just, it really made me, it just really disturbed me the thinking about that division uh, because I really thought of myself as a feminist and how do I do both? And 
I feel like at some level in the United States that it's becoming less divisive, although not completely. I, you know, I, yeah, I've been involved in lots of programs that are still very controversial as to why they would invite somebody whose background is working with couples. But, uh, but in other countries, it seems like it's even more challenging to even bring up the subject of domestic violence and, uh, we're working with couples. It's a decision of them, what they want to bring up. And if they don't bring it up, then we don't bring it up. So, uh, but that's not the way I'm working with folks is really, we got to understand what's going on if we're going to do the work. Yeah. I so appreciate that. And let me know if this is a fair representation. It just feels like your history reflects a, being kind of in the counterculture of domestic violence, both in like kind of maybe the broader domestic violence community, as you were describing uh, folks who are funded through the federal uh, programs couldn't come see you. And then both in the feminist corridors of the domestic violence were kind of doing some, or at least being positioned as counterculture, even though you're understanding or situating your work as feminist. Um, and that's been my experience, too, that the domestic violence world has some pretty clear lines that get drawn around. And it strikes me, too, that you're currently still in some counterculture and naming colonization uh, in this domestic violence stuff. Um, and, yeah, I guess I, if, if it's OK for me to kind of pursue that line of questioning, I wonder, I'm wondering how you're kind of negotiating some of that work with um, your communities and the families you're working with where... I don't know, I'll just say that, the, uh, for example, at the nonprofit I work at, License to Freedom, with Middle Eastern refugees experiencing domestic violence, the challenge and our role in the community is that we're often named as the people that cause divorces, if that makes sense, or like the people that force us to talk about things that cause problems. And they're not necessarily wrong. And so there's like this colonial edge to the work, but there's necessarily some conversations that I personally feel need to be had. I don't know. So see, as I'm even starting to talk about it, it's such a fraught territory. Um, I'm wondering if there's, I don't know, I'm curious what's coming up for you as I'm sharing some of my own experiences. Right. And that, that is definitely what I'm seeing with some of the international work I'm doing now, that whole idea that I would want a couple to come in and talk about these kinds of issues and that I would want a couple to come in alone without their mother-in-law, without extended family. Uh, but the main counterculture issue that I had when I started the work and still in some ways is the uh, whole idea that, that I, as a feminist, would think that a woman talking together with their husband, that they might... Uh, be able to negotiate a new relationship and negotiate a timeout that they might each have a role because there's a preconceived idea that the violence is the man's responsibility. He's the one who's violent. She's not. And by no means am I saying that she's violent, but I'm saying as a couple's therapist, if they couple wants to stay together they're both going to have to have a role in the conversation about how we can make things different. And if, uh, for me to say, to take a feminist, uh, what, what would be considered a traditional feminist is, he's the offender, 
give him anger management batterer program. He's the offender. But she wants to stay with this man, and he's not going there. Or even if he goes there, it's not helping them figure out right. how to have sex the way he wants it or how to have the relationship the way they want. And so somewhere in there, a family therapist who is a feminist has to have a role in ending the violence and making the relationship healthy and not translating to the next generation that family violence, you know, so much intergenerationally transmitted, so much post-traumatic stress that those children grow up watching this kind of, so we have a role as a family family therapist and as feminists to make a difference. That's my passion. Yeah, you can tell. <laughs> yeah, I'm, well, I'm terribly grateful for it and its influence in my own life. I, I wonder if I could ask a question here. Well, I guess my curiosity is drawn to how you're negotiating. And if I misrepresent anything, please correct me. Negotiating the kind of the reflection on the examination, looking at with a couple relational dynamics, and maybe in some ways resisting the individualism located in the cycle of violence, like one person is always X and the other person is always Y, which then I've come back to this other, I think what the what we're naming is the feminist, uh, traditional feminist perspective of like the threat of getting into some victim blaming, the risk of like losing touch with the power structures and particular gendered power structures that shape violence and power and control. I wonder if you could describe a little bit in your work or what you've come to know about how it is that you intersect these things of observing dynamics fairly to a way that's useful while not losing touch on yeah, the critical, the critical work of power. Yeah, that's a really good question. Because you like almost triggered me to think about, you know, like right now I, I, I'm on the board for the local uh, domestic violence crisis center and I have been for a long time. And yeah, it's lots of things I do that are wearing lots of different hats and some of which are strong feminist uh, support victims and others are really, you know, relational. And how do we help this couple if that's what they want to do? And if they want us divorce, like you said, if she's not, I mean, I feel like one of the things I really emphasize in the couple's work that we do, and especially the research we did with this book, is what we look at success has nothing to do with the marriage staying together or not. What we look at as success in a domestic violence situation is ending violence. If they can end the violence and she chooses to leave and speaks out and is able to say, this is not an okay relationship for me, and they can divide up children appropriately, you know, co-parent, if they can live lives that feel healthy and safe, then I think we did an amazing job. And if they choose to stay together and they can stay together in a healthy, safe, nonviolent way, then that's a great job. So we're not at all looking at saving marriages or, of course, not also leading divorces. That's the relationship, the couple's decisions, but uh, but not our decisions. So I don't know. I think I might have got off the subject, but it's definitely uh, triggers me. That, are you trying to help people get divorced? Are you trying to get 
people to stay married in abusive relationships? Are you trying to, you know, we're not trying to do any of that stuff. We're trying to end domestic violence, just like people in shelters, people who batter programs are, it's, it's a community. And I really strongly believe in this coordinated community response where mm. there's a batterer program. There are so many different programs and we all have a role. And yeah, I love it when I've many years I've had uh, batterer programs in the community refer couples to us. So after they finished that program, the court ordered, or even halfway done with the court ordered, the offend the person who worked with the offenders would say this this guy is really struggling with some relationship issues so you know let's refer them over to the virginia tech program so mm. i loved that yeah yeah i appreciate that and just just to make visible for our um, audience because i think there's a way that i hear you talking about success um, and I want to name the radicalness of what you're saying, because I think in, for example, I'm in California and we have child welfare services. And it's very common in my experience that child welfare services outcome, preferred outcome is separation or divorce. And that's their like marker of like, we've done our job. There's no like safety issues. And my more critical side says there's no liability we need to worry about. And then they go off. Um, the challenge then, like, for example, with the Iranian families or Afghan families I've been working with are, well, in Farsi, the word for divorce is talaq. And talaq is not a legal thing like divorces in the U.S. And like for one of the families I'm working with, they're cousins, the husband and wife. And so they're going to be in each other's lives forever, regardless, in multiple right. ways. So. I'm just wanting to name that, that like when you're saying that you want to support families in ending violence, while that might for people outside of DV world sound obvious, perhaps, I don't know, I'm making an assumption. It's quite radical in the frame of DV work to invite people to consider staying together, but violence stopping. Right. And that, yeah. Exactly. It is quite, yeah, controversial or radical. The whole idea that but it's always been the way I've thought. It's, you know, well, I did think, as I said, that you would never work with couples. But once I realized that huge hole that was not being responded to, one of the things that, you know, I'm really thorough in the writing and the teaching and about assessment. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I emphasize so much is, I, I mean, I gave a presentation. I've given lots of, you know, national uh, state family therapy organizations, uh, what percentage of you all have worked more than 10 years in the field? And what percent of you have seen less than, say, 30% of your clients have ever experienced domestic violence? There's a huge number of people who have less than 20% of their clients that have experienced not domestic violence. They've never experienced domestic violence. And my uh, thinking is, they don't know how to do an assessment. They really need to do a thorough assessment because it's like, um, you know, I've been to doctors, medical doctors who say to me, uh, do you have any problems with substances? And I say, no. And they check on the form that they did a substance abuse assessment. That's not a substance abuse assessment. Mm. So if I ask, if I'm a family therapist and I ask my client, uh, do you have any problems with domestic violence in your relationship? 
and they say no, then we check up, okay, this is not domestic violence. And, you know, most people who there is domestic violence in their relationship have never even, many of them have never thought of it as domestic violence. It's just the way men and women are in our family. And yeah, of course, women don't speak at the table. That's not power and control or anything. It's just the way families are. And that's respect in our home. And, but, uh, and the same, you know, that whole idea of, uh, yeah, it's just, we just haven't really thought of it that way. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that because I'm, I'm hearing you say that just simply asking the question doesn't make it meaningful or necessarily like useful because perhaps people are in cultural confines where the question doesn't make sense or there's not a reason to even say anything about it. Cause it's like, yeah, it's doesn't, no, like there's no substance use when right. in the United States you drink alcohol for every birth, death, event ever. And so alcoholism is hard to notice to use that metaphor. So in this conversation you're sharing about assessments, I wonder, like, what are you paying attention to in couples? Um, or what are you maybe asking? Or like, could you share a little bit more about this yeah, assessment process? Sure. So one of the things I really emphasize is individual meetings with each person privately and alone. And then I talk to them about how things are going in their relationship. I talked about what happens when they run into challenges. I ask, has there ever been any time when you raised your voice at him? Well, yeah, I've raised my voice. I've been married 54 years personally. So, you know, I've raised my voice, with my <laughs> husband. but, uh, but he deserved it every time. But, but uh, yeah, but, you know, so then we talk about that and we might even laugh like you're doing, you know, but we also talk about, Anytime he slapped or pushed and what's that like? And it's a conversation. It's, this is a assessment about, and have you, how about you? Has there been times when you've done that? Or, you know, have you let it, have there times when you hit him first and then he hit you? And then I want to know about fear. Do you have any fear that if you speak honestly in this session, that he might get really angry with you? Or even if you speak to me, uh, honestly, and then I report it back to him, which I'm not going to, uh, that he, you know, it could be uh, frightening to you. And I've had many clients, mainly women, who've said, yeah, I'm afraid that if he found out, then I, it would be very dangerous for me. And uh, so I, uh, so I, so we do, a, we ask him also privately and separately. And then if we decide that they don't belong in couples therapy right now because of the fear that she has, I don't want them to leave the session. And uh, he's so angry with her that she's killed on the way home from my session. You uh -huh. know, that that's not going to happen. So if I decide they don't belong in couple, I talk to them both about deciding that they need uh, some individual treatment, that they have too much, too many of their own issues right now. And almost every time I've ever said that, and the husband uh, is the, is he's a primary offender, he says, oh my gosh, she does have her own issues. I've been thinking she needed help for a long time. I'm glad you're going to do that. And, you know, he may or may not do therapy, but it's not endangering her because if I said, 
I'm afraid the violence is too high, then what did she say? You know, it would be dangerous. But if I say each of you have your own issues, then uh, mostly I've never seen anybody that didn't think, especially that their partner had their own issues. But, you know, they may or may not choose to go, but I wouldn't do couples therapy working on negotiating issues unless she felt safe. And if she if things get better and she starts to feel safe, and I'm saying she, it could be he, it could be same-sex relationships. We know it's violence. It just traditionally said he, she. Right. But I don't mean to imply at all that it couldn't be the woman who's the primary aggressor or that it couldn't be bilateral and they're both afraid that their anger level in their home is so high. One of the issues that it's huge in the United States and not any other countries that I've been in is the handgun. And there's a handgun right there in his glove compartment. He's angry right now or she's angry right now. I mean, I have couples that both partners have handguns in the drawers beside the bed. So you got an angry couple and a handgun. And we know that, you know, one of the uh, Chelsea's dissertation and research, my, my colleague, Dr. Spencer, uh, looked at risk factors. And the number one factor by a thousand percent is possession of a handgun. Oh. So if you have ready access, not just you have it locked in a safe somewhere at a, you know, whatever. Uh, but if you have it, that it's right in your glove compartment, it's right in your house, that's super dangerous. And I'm not going to do couples work with them unless they do. I mean, I require, that's one of the things I require is they, you know, say that they've gotten rid of the guns, they've had it locked up, they've, you know, I don't go inspect their house, but guns, huge issue. Probably not as much with your refugee families that you're working with, but. Yeah, it's a good question, though, because you're having me examine my own assessments. Like, it, it hasn't occurred to me to ask about a handgun, and it's shocking me that it hasn't occurred to me because I live around, I mean, San Diego is a military town. I live around guns, you know. Um, and also, as you're describing the ways that you're assessing folks individually before or after the couple session, or does it, is it contextual? Every session, the whole time, I assess before and after. So it takes like twice as long. Or okay. I really prefer uh, that we have co-therapists. So yeah, you can nice. be a student co-therapy co-therapist with you know a licensed mental health provider and uh but that's what i prefer because i talk to him you talk to her you know we do conjoint and then we meet at the 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 value at the end is you you all were talking about some tough stuff in here today and you talked about the miscarriage and i wonder what that brought up for you and how you're feeling right now and do you feel safe that, you know, because I think they could bring up issues in therapy that could lead to escalation when they left. And so I want to make sure that everybody's calm. I, I might do a meditation at the end with either or both. I, you know, I want them to leave at peace. And one of the things that when we were working and developing the program, my colleague, Eric McCollum, had a lot of experience with mindfulness, and I didn't, but we decided to add it. 
and it made a dramatic, nothing statistically I could show you, but uh, couples would come in angry, the parking, she's late, whatever. But we start off with meditation at the very beginning after they have the pre-meeting. And it just calmed everybody down before, mm. you know, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about the parking lot and the problems. So anyway, I think it's a great thing to consider in your work with couples and domestic violence. It really made a difference for us. Yeah, I appreciate that. And um, and I just want to kind of reiterate and acknowledge your acknowledgement of the DV epistemology really situated in cisgendered heterosexual monogamous right, relationships. Right, exactly. And I, I slip into the same way of talking and that reflects a cultural way of talking in domestic violence and also acknowledging the huge and critical influence of queer theory from the 90s on in the work. So I just want to name those really important Thank you. And I really, really want to be there. And yet I, my language is back from... No, no, no. I, I respect... I, I'm in the same world, so I totally right, exactly. understand. That being said, so, so you're doing these individual things. You're maintaining confidentiality. Um, a co-therapy context is supportive of a much more rich and maybe time-sensitive uh, process. You're tracking fear and its influence on the ability to speak about or bring up certain things and what might happen after a session. Is it okay that I ask another kind of practice-focused question? Sure. So let's say you're in a space or a context in which it's okay enough to do couples therapy, if that's an okay phrasing. How are you bringing up issues or the things that the couple wants to talk about, knowing that there is an edge in which things could get a little bit dicey? Well, they bring them up. I mean, we talk about uh, what's going well and what's not going well yet. And so how did you resolve that? And what's, you know, we talk about difficult issues this week and they start talking about, you know, so it's not, we're not avoiding discussing difficult issues. We're uh, continuing to be monitoring how we're doing. We, we teach a, early on, we do a, uh, teach and work with them on a negotiated timeout. That's huge, and also in our work that so they're a, they practice at home before they get into any tense situation. So in the session, if somebody starts to get triggered, they might call a timeout right in the session. And say they're starting to feel this in mm. their heart or in their brain that you know they're they're we may not use the word triggered, but they're starting to get angry or upset and we talk about we might do a meditation we might you know get back to but we're we look at it as a really positive thing if they can bring up a difficult issue even if they start to get triggered and they're able to calm themselves back down and they're able to end a discussion in a way that sees that we're all we're all working to make this better or to make this in a way that everybody can deal with what's going on. And then I've also had situations where when I meet with people individually and somebody's afraid, I've called the shelter people to pick up people from my office who, uh, while the co-therapist was working with the husband, I've had shelter pick up people to leave. Wow. So everybody has not ended up like happy ever after, but uh, it's the goal is to, 
make it as safe as it is and definitely to end violence and to keep this programs, to keep the clients to come safe. Right. Yes. One of my assumptions is anyone that's done any couples work, uh, happy, happily ever after isn't necessarily the uh, marker for right, our work. Exactly. <laughs> There's a lot of hopelessness and that being the uh, measure of our success. Yes, exactly. Happily ever after. That's what I'm looking for. Right. <laughs> so if I could ask, uh, circle back kind of to something you'd brought up earlier, because you're describing a really rich um, field of practice um, and ways that you've had to necessarily be on the edges of some what what various communities accept or what name is acceptable practice what you had brought up colonization i'm curious how that has cropped up into your work or your thinking about this field and couples counseling if it's okay to bring that language back yes absolutely well i uh we've been doing work well, I, actually, we were at a National Council and Family Relations meeting, and they were going to have a, a special program on international perspectives. I got so excited by it, and then I invited all these colleagues that I worked with, both at AFTA, many of them are AFTA members, but also at National Council on Family Relations. And uh, then we even looked up a few places. We didn't know anybody from Africa, so we got somebody from Nigeria. You know, we wanted to try to make this as representative as possible, Australia. Mm-hmm. And uh, they all worked with me and we did a special session in, in CFR. So I started getting excited about the idea of an AFTA brief, you know, and, but then I started reading all of the other briefs that were before me. And, uh, and that's where uh, 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 Teresa McDowell's work came up and she really talked about uh colonization and how so many of us as family therapists, we, we look at it as evidence-based and manualized program. That's what you need to do. So I have an evidence-based manualized program I developed in Virginia and I'm traveling and teaching people in Israel or in Europe and Australia. And, uh, but I haven't ad- learned anything about what is family therapy like and how what services are available and what does it mean to be a feminist and I've just taken my work and applied it randomly and so that just really challenged me to think Mm. differently and uh, so in that book uh, every chapter is written by someone from that country rather than me writing a chapter about domestic violence in Iran. So I never even been to Iran. So, uh, you know, I could read what's written out there in the research and summarize it, but somebody who really lives there. And so it's just, I mean, I'm so not there as far as being totally anti, I mean, uh, at the next level of being uh, not colonizing but that's where I want to be. And that's what got me really excited about uh, how can we as family therapists work to support people in other countries in their work without colonizing, without saying, oh, yeah, you do the negotiated timeout. Everybody does that. Well, it, that work might not very much well work in, you know, how can we work together and that that's really exciting to me is working with somebody from another country 
and trying to test and evaluate and assess and make changes to the program that would really work in uh, the community. And I mean, you could even do that in the United States in different Native American, you know, indigenous communities. What, what can I do that could be useful and helpful? I'm not at a, you know, I'm at a really good place in my life to be able to help people and not have, you know, four classes I have to teach. And, you know, I just, it's, it's exciting to be where you can make a difference. So anyway, I'm not there, but I would like to be there as far as really, you know, where I could be. Well, and I want to honor the reflexivity and humility in that position. And I don't know, I wouldn't, I don't know how much I would trust anyone who thinks they're there in a post-colonial okay, world. Okay, good point. Uh, so I, so I appreciate that. And, and I want to say too, that there's, um, there's ways that I'm hearing you acknowledging in the domestic violence work. And this is how I understand it at least. So please, um, edit me if it's uh, not aligned with your own way of thinking it. There's a lot of Americanisms embedded in the domestic violence epistemology, which is fine for American cultures, but being located in a country that's, as a euphemism, exporting ideas. Right, <laughs> exactly. Exporting it. ideas, right. And I, that's what I've done a lot of my career, exporting ideas. So Yes. So being kind of like careful and mindful of that. Uh, how how the ideas are placed elsewhere. It strikes me, uh, Dr. Stith, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you're in your description of your relationship with couples work in domestic violence, your relationship with some of the ways that feminism in the work is framed pretty firmly, and even in now this work of na- acknowledging the colonial aspects of domestic violence epistemology, strikes me that you're kind of living in tensions, like whether it's couples tensions, political tensions, philosophical ones, if that's a fair representation. This is a bit of a selfish question, but like how do you cultivate and maintain like hope and energy for the work in the face of violence and stories of violence that you're sitting with? Yeah, that's an interesting question. If you knew me personally, you know I'm very conflict avoidant. And how did I get myself into this work? I just, I really don't like people to be angry with me. So I work really hard in my personal life and, you know, just, yeah, staying uh, out of the middle of triangles. But, um, but I just am passionate about the work I do. And that, uh, and if I can help this couple that's struggling or this woman that's got to get out of this dangerous situation or this man, uh, I, it just, yeah, touches my heart. It makes a difference in the work, in the life I live. But for my own joy, in addition to the work I do, I have amazing friends and my friends are there all the time, you know, so and I've had a great husband for a long time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm noticing the element of community that's so present in your personal life that you're speaking to and also in your work, because you're talking about ways right. that shelters are showing up in the middle of sessions and uh, the ways that you're connected to various stakeholders in the community that might support the work you're doing, like batter programs, et cetera. Right. And anybody asks me to give a talk, I can. I speak to this group, that group. I, I'm like anybody that knows me knows if they ask, I would do it as far as being able to share and being a part of a community. That's really important to me. So 
Yeah. Thanks for answering, uh, letting me ask that question. It's one that it's it's one I'm exploring in my own life because uh, I sit in stories of violence every day as well, and there's ways that I've been starting to notice the ways those stories are mapped onto my body in various ways, including what led to a back surgery last year, um, and kind of being a reflection of yeah, sitting in stories of violence and how it affects health, and I feel dare I say, very connected to you and just this passion and energy and just the center of my soul to just do the work. So the selfishness is like, tell me how to keep doing this for as long as you have. <laughs> well, yeah, you're, you're bringing up some really difficult issues. And I, I listened to those other uh, podcasts and I saw you did that, but I didn't realize this was going to happen to me, so thank you. But, you know, it's just that thinking about how do you keep not being so traumatized by the work you do, the clients that you see, the, uh, I yeah, so I have had situations and I just, yeah, was thinking about situations where I would be in a session and have t- trouble breathing because I would start to be in that relationship rather than the outside person in that relationship, if that makes sense. I would be thinking about my childhood, be thinking about right. situations that have happened, and I would get triggered, and I would have to take deep breaths and have to re- remember, uh, this is not you, this is, you know, and I don't know if you've ever had to do that, but no, uh, there's times... It seems like it became less as the more experience I had and the more Mm. confident and comfortable I got. It seems like my biggest memories of uh, really being triggered was as a grad student working Mm. in domestic violence, which is what always what I've done. And yeah, more so than now or, you know, I don't know. And writing is much easier than... Uh, actually doing the work, you know, I did the work. Now I'm writing about the work. And so mm-hmm. I look at the quotes that clients gave and I, but I don't get it, you know, of course, triggered by the, by writing about the work like I did right. sitting in the r- middle of the room. So, well, it speaks to your relationship to writing to say that it's easier. I think there's probably a lot of practitioners out there who. <laughs> might yeah, exactly. But for me, it's not as triggering. It's like, yeah. you know, I just get so engaged and, yeah, as opposed to making sure that everybody's safe and I feel responsible and, yeah. Well, so. given that you've been in this work for so long and particular DV field and seen it go through quite a series of transformations, if that's fair, what are your hopes for the movements of the domestic violence work? Of the field. Of the field. Yeah, yeah. so... Well, I hope that we can uh, continue to interact and so that we're not divided up by this group and that group, that we can try to understand each other and we can all sort of like say, how can we work together? And I mean, one of the issues that is huge, I did a work with a student, uh, 
looking at state standards and requirements. And so many states don't allow couples therapy and some require 26 weeks of men, some require 12 weeks, some require, we don't have any evidence to support which one of these is the right answer, but the states and their, you know, their struggle with how am I going to make those standards? So they've got to make standards and everybody has to follow them and, you know, I just wish that uh, we as clinicians and as researchers could really get uh, have a role where we could talk to people on the standards. We could be on the standards committees. We could think about what can make a difference. And, yeah, I I feel like we got really too quickly into developing standards and rules uh, and who should or shouldn't do what before we really have clear grounded evidence about what yes. can be done and with with whom will that work with an indigenous or will that work with a recent immigrant from will that work you know that yeah but no we all do the same thing so mm. anyway, it's a challenge yeah what i'm what i'm kind of uh, interpreting and in what you're saying is the ways that we m- might necessarily have some political activism necessarily embedded into right. our work. Right. And how exactly. it is that we're moving beyond practice in our in our therapy locations and into standards or rather some broader um, perspectives on how the communities orient to families experiencing violence. I you you say political activism and that's interesting because I that's not a term that I would think about but it, I, you know, what I see it as more like I'm working in all these communities and like finding, you know, mm. if I can have a relationship and get invited to, I was at the Arizona conference this year where you're invited to be representing your state to look at standards and uh, cool. very, you know, I've loved so many different things I've done that are not just couples therapy and being in a broader space is important to me. So political activism, I guess that it would be. Yeah. And maybe that's exactly what I think where we need to go, where you guys need to do the political activism while I go to the beach. (laughs) Yes. Well, you very much deserve it. And I think I I'll speak for myself and the folks in my community who have been greatly influenced by your work. Thank you. You deserve the beach so much. Um, And yeah, I'm honored to carry forward any legacy of your work that I can. Thank you. And I hope, uh, Navid, I've enjoyed this conversation and your communication with me. And I hope we can work together in the future on any way I can be helpful or be a part of your next step. You know, that'd be great. I would love that. So for those listening, uh, Dr. Sandy Stith is located in Kansas at Kansas State University and all the other contexts that she's in over there. Uh, And you can find her through AFTA and some of the membership directories and whatnot through that. And thank you so much for spending some time with me today. Thank you. And I will expect all all the people listening today to start sending me emails about (laughs) cases they've got because I... I love to support and to be a uh, you know, guide or help thought about while you're working on this work. So thank you so much for including me. Thank you.